My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. The Forgecast this week is brought to you by our mate Robert Weber Abrasives, who provides quality abrasives to blacksmiths and bladesmiths Australia-wide. Visit abrasives.on.net to get in touch and see how he can resupply you today. Yeah, so um, what have you been up to this week, Alex? Uh, I've been so booked out with orders, I've actually closed my books for for the time being. It's um, I've backed up for about six weeks on the work that I've got workload that I've got, and yeah. Um, yeah, I've been one of the projects I'm working on is that uh, mushrooming knife for Niels Vandenberg, which has been super cool to work on because my first ever folding knife outside of straight razors, mm. um, which don't really count as a folding knife because they're just sort of free swinging. <laughs> <laughs> they fold. <laughs> they fold, yeah. Uh, but this one's a lockback folding knife, which has been very mm. satisfying to work on. It's really good for people with mild OCD. <laughs> Get that nice click sound. It's um, provided a lot of challenges, but um, that's that's why we do these things. Um, I've got a few more standard fixed blade mushroom knives uh, on the go. Uh, awesome hunter a hunting knife with that antler mm. handle um i've been struggling to find a piece of antler that is thick enough to have uh, be used as a handle in its entirety and even then trying to find one with a nice inline crown at the end of it mm. um getting the the shape of you know, the right shaped piece of antler is tricky um so i came up with the notion of having antler at the top antler at the bottom and then putting wood in the middle, and that way I can rotate everything to position itself uh, the way it ought to be. Uh, and it's looking really nice. It's it's all held together with pins and then epoxy between the pins, so it's it's very solid, uh, homogenous uh, piece. But, yeah, it, it's coming out really quite good, just working on shaping the handle, and that's usually the part that I take the longest with. Um, I've been also slowly working on processing down this... Um, quote unquote Dane axe that I'm working on <laughs> it's a lot of steel to move um, and not being used to moving that much steel and not having any sort of presses or anything and just doing it in in stages um, it's almost almost uh, at a point where it's starting to resemble an axe which is quite so, cool so the first stage is denial <laughs> yeah um, in hindsight it probably wasn't a good idea to make it out of sup 9 <laughs> <laughs> I I I think that I remember someone warning you about that. Yeah, I remember someone too, but it's... <laughs> but you know me, I, I I like to take on incredibly difficult jobs. I uh, I do at least seven impossible things before breakfast. So well, this this is true. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's 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 pretty much been my my week really, and my my next few weeks has just slowly gone through these orders. Um, and, and get to the point where I can re- reopen my books, really, and start taking some fresh things. Uh, what about you? I have been flat out making tongs and stuff. Miniature tongs. <laughs> so, so many tongs. Yeah, miniature tongs. You know, I, um, so I did the left-hand challenge, the Forgecast challenge for mm-hmm. May. 
thank you, Stefan. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Cursing his name the entire time. Absolutely, yeah. You can hear my sped up voice in the background, and you know you don't want to know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> but no, I um, decided that instead of doing like an entire project left-handed, because uh, like leaves and stuff like that, it was just it didn't fill me with joy the idea of trying to do that so it did not spark joy it did not spark joy and seeing as i've been doing a lot of tong based stuff recently i was kind of like you know what another tong video wouldn't hurt uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so i decided that it'd be really funny to see if i could forge a set of tongs using my right hand for one rain and my left hand for the second rain uh just to see like just to give an exact representation of how much worse i am <laughs> with my left hand <laughs> Um, and surprisingly, it came out a lot better than I thought it was going to. Like, it actually came out <laughs> looking pretty decent. Uh, I'm not sure if I should great. be glad or I should be sad that my right hand looks... Like, the work that I do with my right hand looks almost as good as the work I do with my left hand. <laughs> like, I'm not sure if that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> might speak to my lack of talent rather than my, my you know, uh, you know, my overabundance of talent. Um... But yeah, so apart from that, I, I made another couple of sets of miniature tongs. I actually had someone order a set of miniature tongs from me. Really? Um, yeah, off that photo. Like, the, there was a jeweler uh, in America who messaged me, and she's like, I love those. Can I please have a set? So I was like, okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, again, breaking the rule of not making tongs for other people, but this doesn't really count, because technically they're pliers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that was the thing. I did a live stream where I forged a set of scrolling tongs, uh, very similar to the set that I forged for you, including the mm -hmm. spoon handle, um, handles. Yeah. And this time I didn't They had a little, and... little bit more of a, sort of a Craig Turnica style jaw boss transition. Yeah, so yours was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, they were the first set I ever made. And I also gave mine a little bit more offset than yours. Um, mainly because I was expecting to be turning larger material. Yeah, you um, know I do so, a lot of small stuff. Yeah, so I needed a little bit more gap between the, the bits. So I wanted your bits to be pretty much like parallel when they, when, when they were closed. And yeah, um, yours have a thigh gap. Yeah, mine have a thigh gap, that's right. Um... <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, they, they but they do. It does give them a really cool little uh, artistic flair there um, that I really like. So uh, it was a little easier this time because I had Preston. You know that mm. I honestly it blew me away. Like I know it, every time I use Preston, I'm always impressed with how much work impressed? he does. Impressed. I am impressed. <laughs> but um, no, honestly, I I remember forging out the reins on your set of scrolling yeah. tongs and I how remember much hearing work. you complain about before yeah you well I, I won't stop but this was just <laughs> a dream like I did it on live stream and it took me like four heats and it was just insane how easy it was I was like I can't believe I did this by hand <laughs> but yeah so uh, that was fun I've been working on knives as well I've been working on that uh, recurve fighter that I've got to finish uh, it's actually gluing up with the micarta now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been making plants. So I bought some iso wool. Uh, bought a, a roll of iso wool. And I'm going to be building my new forges uh, very soon. This excites me. 
yeah, it's going to be great. I'm, I'm, I'm uber excited. Now all I need is the forge bodies, um, and I'll be able to start forging away. I've got to start searching through my, my scrap to see if I've got anything that I can use. You, you sticking with the single burner or are you doing a double burner? No, I'll do a single burner. Yeah. Right. I'm going to do a single, I'm going to do two single burner post box forges. Um, so very much in similar style. Neil's Vandenberg style. Yeah, Niels Vandenberg, uh, Don Fogg kind of style. Um, I want to do a small one and a large one. And then I'm going to make a new uh, horizontal forge. Um, circular. Uh, nine kilo gas bottle kind of forge. Um, yeah. So, yeah. You're going to make your make your own burners? No. <laughs> no. No. Like, I don't, I don't play with gas fittings and stuff like that very much. And... Um, I'd much rather purchase it from a place where I can just, you know, plug it and play it. <laughs> so I will be buying Gamaco burners. Um, okay. Uh, well, I've already got I've already got the Gamaco burners for two of them. I just need one more uh, right. for for the third forge. But the post box forges post box forges will be coming first, and then I'll build the um, nine kilo forge another day. Um, I'm also com- going to be completely ripping apart my workshop uh, this week. This coming week uh, with Andy, my friend. He's coming over and for two days we're going to rip the whole shop apart and completely reorganize it. So uh, it's going to be uh, unrecognizable. Well, Seems really. to be the season for it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's not um, it's not going to be super unrecognizable because the, the bench is going to be in the same place because it's already bolted to the wall. Yep. Uh, my grinder is going to stay where it is and Preston's going to stay where he is. But uh, everything else is getting shuffled around and I'm getting rid of a lot of the shelving and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it should look quite good, and I'm, it's going to improve my flow uh, a little bit better, which is something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. It will spark joy. It will spark joy, indeed. I'm trying to spark joy in all you know walks of my thing. I also uh, this very evening filmed the first episode of my podcast of my um, Patreon only uh, knife lesson uh, very on cool. design. It's an hour long. <laughs> <laughs> just just all on the design um so yeah episode one will be going out monday or tuesday uh, probably monday cool. if i recorded it tonight yeah. um so yeah that's it, it's been busy very busy yeah sounds like it what was your song of the week mine's actually um I, i'm i'm big on playlists for different vibes and things um mm-hmm. and i have an angry playlist <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know how there's some songs that are just really good to listen to when you're freaking angry and you're just mm-hmm. you're really feeling a lot of anger towards somebody need um, to unleash the beast yeah and there's you know there's songs like um, like Wolf in Sheep's Clothing and that which are really just hard hitters for getting that anger out um, I found one re- only very recently I'd never heard of this band before ever and I've found a song of theirs, which is possibly one of the angriest songs I've ever heard that isn't, like, screaming. Um, it's actually, like, singing, and it's it's got... You know how some songs can really build and then drop really well? Yeah. You, you just sort of know what I mean when I'm talking about that? I, this I one has one of the best builds and drops I've ever heard in my life. Um, and the band is called Grandson. And right. the song is called Blood Water. And it's just, yeah, it's it it's a real hard hitter. It's really good. One of those ones you really want to turn up if you ever feel like a, you need a vent. 
Fair enough. Yeah. Cool, man. How about you, Sam? What's your song of the week? Well, I promised that I was going to switch it up from my usual uh, giving chill vibes beats and stuff like that. Uh, And so I decided to go with uh, one of my favorite um, kind of... So it's pirate metal. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So it's a band called Ailstorm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ailstorm. They're they're fantastic. They're they're almost a parody band. Are you going to say the song I think you're going to say? Well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> after your your song last week i was very tempted to tell my my favorite song from theirs of but instead i'm not going to and i'm going to say drink instead uh, of course you're gonna say drink it's a good yeah, song. yeah it, it is, is a, a good, good song. song okay so you can also add fucked with an anchor to the because <laughs> <laughs> that is a brilliant song i honestly okay so no i'm gonna change it fucked with an anchor has to be on the podcast playlist i'm sorry <laughs> <That's> guys <laughs> That is my favorite song from Ailstorm. It's and honestly, favorite song from Ailstorm. And if you're and if you're talking about like angry music, like yeah. that's a good way to make you laugh and like yeah. get some form of savage joy when you're listening to it. It's also a genuinely good song. It is. And it's so catchy and <laughs> just you know, now now I just I can't help but like play it in my head whenever I'm angry at someone. You know, like yeah. You know, yeah. like, yeah, so that that has when, to be... When it opens, the first time you hear it, and when the song opens, you think, this is just a silly parody song, but then the music drops in, and you're thinking, oh, yeah. I can get into this. I can really get behind this song. And it's funny, because <laughs> I'm, like, really not into metal. Like, I don't, don't listen to a lot of metal. I don't listen to a lot of rock and stuff like that. I do try and mm-hmm. listen to chill stuff, because it keeps my blood pressure down. Uh, <laughs> but Ailstorm is just so much fun. Um, yeah. with a lot of their songs, so yeah, um, definitely worth a check out, and uh, yeah, we'll add that to the, the playlist. <laughs> Drink is also a good song. It is a it is a good song. It's but just yeah. you can't br- you can't bring up that band without. <laughs> yeah, our <laughs> playlist is is very quickly becoming an R eighteen plus playlist. <laughs> All these people that will be probably playing it with their kids in their car and thinking, oh. <laughs> And it's funny because like the music for for fucked with an anchor is like really boppy at the beginning. You, you, you really think it's boppy. Like, it sounds like a kid song at the beginning. Yeah, with the with the accordion and. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So. Right. That. So, what are we going to move on to? We're going to do listener emails or inspirations. I think you should decide this time. We'll do inspirations be- simply because one of the listener emails is actually very poignant to our topic of the week. Excellent. So, um, my inspiration of the week is a twofer, uh, but they work as a team. Uh, they are brothers Claudio and Ariel Sobral, uh, who go by Cass Knives. They're from Buenos Aires, and their work just is unfair. It's insane. Yeah. Um, And I actually told Sam before the show that there's a particular piece of theirs from way back. They did it ages ago because they actually got their start in gunsmithing. Yes. Um, And I I wanted to actually get Sam's reaction to this. I'm going to send it to you on Skype right now. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm very familiar with uh, Claudio and and their work. 
I'm I'm a massive fan of of the Sabral brothers. Yeah. Now I've the s- picture that I just sent Sam is of a, su- a Damascus subhilt fighter with antler handle. Uh, fr- it looks like a frame tang antler handle, but inside that frame tang is a fully functioning black powder pistol. And the actual uh, the what would you call that the the ring guard? What's the secondary guard on a subhilt fighter? It's a it's a subhilt. Uh, yeah, I suppose that yeah, the actual subhilt itself is the trigger of yeah, the and it's of an incredible pattern, uh, high layer Damascus billet, and I think it's integral. It might not be. Um, not sure. They do do a lot of integrals though. They do, but it's it's actually in a handmade case with all of the black powder loading tools and you know shot presses and everything that all the accoutrement that comes with a black powder pistol and it is stunning and it is just one of dozens and dozens and dozens of absolutely exquisite pieces that just make my jaw drop and seeing photos of their workshop it is pristine yep. it is just like dexter level orderly and clean <laughs> yep. and these guys do some of the most phenomenal work on Instagram that I have seen. And, I mean, we've had Kyle Royer on this show, and I'm still saying they do phenomenal work. Like, Kyle's a fan of theirs. He follows them. Um, The Sabral brothers are, like, legends in the knife-making community. Like, everyone knows a Sabral knife, especially in the knife-making circles. If you see a Sabral knife, you know it's theirs. Mm. Uh, especially their um, their stainless sanmai. Yes, uh, and they prefer to work with sta- sanmai, even though they do a lot of Damascus work. They actually openly say we prefer sanmai because uh, and it's a topic. It, they they agree with the same reasoning that I've used in the past. They prefer sanmai over Damascus because sanmai is not only visually distinctive and beautiful, but it's functional. Yeah, um, and they they follow the same thing. It's it's just mind blowingly good work. I um I originally started following them uh, back like seven years ago when I started knife making, you know, in my in my infancy, um, mm-hmm. because I love subhilts and they are massive subhilt fans. They make yeah. a lot of subhilts, and their des- their style is just so unique. It's oh yeah I I understand why you use them as a as a um, as an inspiration. Although I'm a little ticked off because I always wanted to use them as an inspiration, um, <laughs> <laughs> especially uh, I I was going to use them as inspiration a while back because they made a muso buoy. Um, oh right, in their style, and it's it's insane. Like my muso buoys are big, theirs was ginormous. Yeah. It was huge. Well, it had like a half. Of- it had like a half inch thick spine. Wasn't yours an 18-inch blade? Um, no. Like, my... So, the big Muso had a 14-inch blade. 14-inch blade. So, bigger than that is pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, and, like, the depth is the big thing, and the thickness. This thing was just chunky. Like, like buster sword. <laughs> yeah, seriously. This thing was a monster. And, yeah, they're, they're just... I love their work, like, because they, they work with a lot of things that I really like. Subhilts, and they also do, um, they use amber-dyed stag in a lot of mm. their handles. And yep. stag antler handles are, like, some, some of my favorite things, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good, then, good call. It, 
their sense of the aesthetic in the shaping of their blades and the the grinds that they do and and they're working on a kukri at the moment which is a kukri only on a technicality really <laughs> but nobody's n- nobody can be too mad because like you look at the what they've done or what they're doing for it and it's just it's scary that that much skill is contained within two people you know if <laughs> What if they turn their attentions to world domination? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like they and yeah, as I said, the designs are so unique that you can mm. tell them from a mile away. And so, if you want to follow them, if you're not already following them, they're on Instagram, C A S underscore knives, Kaz underscore knives, and it stands uh, for their initials. Um, it's uh, Claudio, uh, Claudio, and Ariel. Sabriel? Sabral. 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 Yeah, so um, C-A-S is is what you want to look for. Um, And prepare to drool because I've I've been just... I've been inspired by them for a long time, ever since starting my knife-making journey. And um, it's... As my work has been progressing, it sort of sees, seems to be one of those far goalposts that I would never expect to be able to reach but always like to aim at. Yeah, the... And some of their finishes just seem unreal. They do a lot of mirror finishing and stuff and mm. gun blue finishing. And you look at it even in video and it just looks like CGI. It's so yeah. clean. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just like, this isn't real. This is this is fake. <laughs> it has yeah, to be fake. That's right. Your brain can't fathom that something like that could actually be a physical object somewhere. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's insane. They, they, they are just insane. So, yeah, good call. Yeah. How about you, Sam? <clears throat> so, my inspiration this week uh, is, uh, like I said last week, I was going to have uh, an inspiration for exactly the same reason. This is my last one. Uh, this week is um, a blacksmith who's been very uh, popular on YouTube. He's also worked with Alex Steele once or twice. Uh, he was a member of the Young Blacksmiths with Alex Steele under Brian Brazil. Um, he is uh, somewhat of a contentious character. Again, like I'm choosing contentious characters at the moment, but he is very traditionalist. He loves his traditional blacksmithing, uh, forge welding especially, uh, is what he's known for. And uh, for those of you who know who he is, you should know by now. Uh, is Joey Vandersteeg. Um, Someone I'd actually really like to have on the show at one point. Absolutely. I, I would be over the moon to have him uh, on the show because he is a fantastic blacksmith. Mm. Um, and... You know, like a lot of people, again, <clears throat> much like Roy that uh, I was talking about last week, there are not a lot of people out there who do blacksmithing who haven't seen one of Joey's videos. Mm. Instrumental uh, in, in getting a lot of people this, their start, really. Absolutely. And, I mean, he's been on YouTube since his very beginning days, back when he was Technicus Joe, mm. um, you know, making nails and stuff like that. And I, those were the first videos that I came across of his ages ago. Uh, because he does mostly industrial style blacksmithing. Yep. And one of the things that's really been making me drool recently has been his mini anvil builds. Yeah. Where he does traditionally forge welded mini anvils. And then uh, forges miniature things on them. Well, yeah. But like <laughs> the, the thing is, is that I, there are a lot of people out there who use forge welding. There are not many people who use forge welding like Joey does. Mm. That kid can forge weld anything. 
Like, I'm convinced. Because if you watch his videos, he can make... Like, he just takes two pieces of steel, slaps them together, and suddenly... With the mill scale on them. You yep. know, doesn't doesn't give a damn. Just tappy-tap, there we go, forge welded. What? <laughs> Honestly, and he just... Like, it's scary how clean his welds are. Yeah. Like, he's he's got a couple of demo pieces that he's actually left the... Like, he says he's left the, um, the seams in it to show you where the forge welds are. But even on those, those forge welds look better than anything I've ever done. Yep. Like... <laughs> You look at some of the um, the miniature ambles that he's made, and you would swear that they were forged out of one piece. Yeah. But because he's using the traditional techniques, they're normally six or seven or eight pieces. Um, you know, like the the body is one piece, the feet. You know, there's one piece for each foot, mm. and then there's the the horn and the heel are welded on, and then the the faceplate is welded on. So <laughs> you've got all of these multiple parts, but they all look like one piece, and it's insane. But um, the reason that he's my inspiration this week is because uh, he's also done a lot of forging tongs videos. Mm. Um, the tongs, the scrolling tongs that I made today and the scrolling tongs I made for you are directly based off of his scrolling tong video. Right. Uh, he used a 5 8 um, round bar, which is 16 mil round bar, um, spring steel from a coil spring to forge his scrolling tongs. The only thing that I did different was that I did the spoon handles on it rather than round reins. Um, but yeah, his, that it's basically a direct copy of his style. Um, and that's, it's just such an effective style, such a beautiful style. Um, but I also plan on doing a bunch of his other builds. He's done, uh, like bolt jaw tongs and stuff like that, yep. that I really want to copy. But he's just, every build that he does is so useful because he, he loves getting the camera as close as possible. He's always saying in his videos, he's like, I hate these blacksmith channels where they don't get the camera close enough. We want to see what special, you're doing. Special screens and things to protect from flying slag. And he's he's melted lenses before. And things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean, like, as a, as a YouTube blacksmith myself, like, I I'm, I'm, have to be careful because I'm using my phone as my camera. So I can't get too close. And I lament that because I'm with Joey. Getting close as you can really shows the techniques that he's using. Hmm. Um, you know, like shows you what's can happening see, to the steel. Yeah, you can see what's happening to the steel as it happens. And it, he, his video editing style is very, very succinct. It's very cool. And because he's doing a lot of traditional stuff, it really appeals to those that traditionalist in all of us um, that really likes you know everything to be made with a hammer and anvil. Hmm. Um, and yeah, he just makes all kinds of wacky, cool stuff. Like he did um, uh, anchors for a while, traditionally forge welded anchors. Yeah, with wrought uh, those, iron too, weren't they? Uh, some of them were mild steel, and he did one in wrought iron as well. Yeah. But he's just done so much work in like wrought iron, bog iron, you know, all kinds of crazy materials, uh, and you know, practicing forge welding in various mediums. It's just crazy. He's he's just an insane smith, and he's also just a, an incredibly knowledgeable uh, guy. Mm. Um, so yeah, definitely worth a check out. Uh, he is, goes under Joey Vandersteeg on YouTube, and he's also on Instagram as well. He actually, uh, in the early days of my getting into blacksmithing, um, he did a video where I'd, at the end of the video, it just he showed him working in this forge that was the most spectacular looking forge I've ever seen in my life. I, is that I, the one where he was forging on the flatter? Where he was like forging with a sledgehammer around that giant German patent anvil? 
No, it was the workshop was basically like the walls were covered in tongs. Yeah, like entirely, like every well, like was... hundreds and hundreds of pairs, and the the forge was this huge stone walled thing in the center of the room with a hood over it. Mm. Uh, and the camera was actually up high and looking down at him working and I saw that and it just made my love of blacksmithing be solidified because I realized that one day I wanted that yeah absolutely I mean he he was a full-time blacksmith um, Mm. for a while Uh, and I think he's getting back to it now Um, he actually quit being a full-time blacksmith purely because he uh he found in the place that he was, I think he was living in the Netherlands at the time, but he's now moved to Germany, um, that the customer base weren't willing to pay the price for traditionally uh, joined work. Mm. So he liked to work in rivets and forge welding. Like, he didn't like to use stick welders or any kind of modern appliance. Mm. Um, and so, But he wasn't willing to, uh, you know, Compliment. sacrifice... Yeah, sacrifice his art for, you know, money. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I and Which I had massive, massive, I had massive respect for him for that. You know, like it, a lot of people got upset with him. It's like, oh, why don't you just use a welder? I'm like, hey, man, he's got an idea of what he wants to do, and he's willing to stick to it, and that's just awesome. That's it. I. That's it. The only thing that made me cry was when he was selling everything, and I couldn't buy it off him because yeah. you know, like he he was he sold like he had like twenty anvils, and he sold them all, and they're all like the German pattern, my favorite pattern of anvil. Yeah, uh, and like buckets and buckets and buckets of tongs, and I was like, ah, oh, just. <laughs> was just good. Yeah, I, 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 I'm sure you agree that um, a Joey Vanderseek set of set of tongs would um, one day hopefully end up in my collection. Oh man, if he ever gets, well, he has started selling tongs again now. Has he? Yeah, I just saw that he posted up a, a set for sale on his Instagram, and I wanted to jump on them, but they were already gone. Oh, like, cool. he, he posted it like five minutes before I saw it, right? and they were gone by the time I hit his Etsy store. Because I'm slowly like, getting tools made by all of the people who are my favorites, but I'm still still waiting on a Roy Adams, and I'm still waiting on a Joey Vandersteeg. Yeah, I've actually and, got to get in touch, in touch with Roy, because we're supposed to be trading stuff, but I said that's just been kind of put on hold <laughs> with everything going on. Yeah, he's he's got his new life that he's doing. So yeah, yeah, Joey Vandersteeg. We'll right. have him on the show one day. Hopefully. One day, we'll reach out. He might be he might be cool with it. So uh, listener emails, I suppose. Yes, indeed. We have two. First one is from Fred Bergman. He says, hello guys, I am going to get started building a small shed space for smithing and I was wondering what you would consider optimal for setting up your workspace. I know that most of the time this is very customized for the individual and the space available. However, what items would you consider to be needed? How would you prefer them to be laid out, etc.? Items I plan on having are a workbench, my charcoal forge, anvil, uh, possibly anvils, Multiple lights for adjusting brightness depending on what it is ne- uh, what is needed. A bench vise. A leg vise is out of the price range at the moment. That's fine. Uh, tool racking. Anything else that comes to mind for you that would be super, super helpful or necessary. Thanks and keep up the awesome podcast and video content that you both provide, Fred. That sounds pretty thorough to me, Fred. Especially- Honestly, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much the list down to a T. <laughs> and like we talked about lighting in the last episode um, and 
adjustable lighting is something we didn't actually cover in the forge space because when you're trying to look for color um, too much lighting can ruin your ability to perceive the color of hot steel so being able to adjust your lighting that's that's a really great addition if you're building a space up from scratch absolutely yeah i mean i suppose the only uh addition i can think of that i would like think about putting in there would be something like a uh a wire wheel grinder um combo a grabby like bench, thrower bench grinder yeah the, the, the grabby throwy um but like that's not a necessity that's just something that might make certain things easy like easier like deburring and, and stuff like that yeah well it does take um it does just sort of work out what are you making i mean if you're going to be forging knives you might want your grinder to be in there um but if not then having like sam said some ability to deburr or uh wire wheel basically if you have power running to the shed if you've got lights i imagine you've got power going there so having a couple of angle grinders on the wall like one mm-hmm. with a one with a flat disc one with, or, or one with a cutoff disc one with a wire wheel on it or something like that you can actually um save time swapping out um what's actually on the grinder and just have them hanging on the wall and plugged in ready to go yeah angle angle grinders are a must-have uh i was i was more thinking fixed equipment but yeah angle oh, grinders yeah, definitely. That, that, I, I, uh, and a bench drill i don't i can't drill press yeah drill, drill press yeah it depends on where you are in the world depends on what they're called yeah i mean drill press normally means pedestal drill but you know either way yeah well um the uh, only other thing that I can think of when you're talking about the layout is something that I covered recently in my optimizing a workspace video on my YouTube channel. Subtle mm-hmm. plug there. Um, I've got my forge set up because we were talking about your forge here. Uh, my forge is set up in a ring. Um, the entire thing is designed so that whatever section of my forge I'm standing at, every other section is only one step away. Um, and the most optimal way to do that is to set it up in a ring, in a, in a big circle. Um, but it depends on how you have it laid out, what sort of space you have. Your, you say it's a small shed space, it might only be two by two meters, in which case mm-hmm. you're, you're going to be limited in where you can put things. But um, to be honest, my entire forging area can be compressed into a space that's uh, four by four meters. And um, that's a pretty reasonable size shed. Um, small shed and if you can work it out there then you can actually have everything laid out in that circle your center space where you move around needs to keep fairly clear really um, unless you want to maybe put the vice stand in the very center Um, but that that's a personal preference i like to be able to cross the space not have to move around anything because it means that when you need to work fast there's nothing impeding you by the time that this episode comes out, I will have done my um, forge refit, and one of the things I'm planning on doing is showing uh, the the layout of the forge and how I planned the new forge layout, um, and showing the process as well, a little bit of the process at least. Um, so hopefully they'll be in there in that, but I take a similar approach to Alex, but because I'm working with a little bit more space and I'm working with very different tooling... He um, says more I've, space, my forge is like four times the size of sam's this is true okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah his his forge is huge Uh, but anyway um i'm i'm working so my mine actually centers around my anvil so my anvil is basically like the central pillar 
uh, in the workshop, and then I actually have the forge on the outside of it, and um, yeah. Sam's but, biggest difference is that Sam's shed is his also his finishing room, um, yeah. so mine is just my forge um so like we were saying it depends on what you're going to be doing in there if it's just forging then might be different yeah absolutely if if i was only doing forging in that room it would look very different but because my shed is my only workspace um you know other than for like you know light filing and stuff like that which i can do here in my workroom um i have set it up so that it's optimal for all tasks Mm. And in, in that realm, it, you've actually got it pretty good. Aside from um, you, you fall for the same thing that I fall for and every other maker falls for, and that is the um, horizontal flat space problem. Soon to be fixed. Soon to be fixed. Um, I'm, I'm trying to take that out with uh, my tool racking and things that I've been building recently. Um, that is a curse that you should try and mitigate. If you're starting from the ground up, start with good tool racking um, and follow that rule of keep it in view. Keep it and seen. Keep, keep your workbench space to a minimum. Mm-hmm. Like if, um, you know, having having a flat surface to put things on is important. Like to to like do designs or to lay out pieces to in order to organize for welding and stuff like that. But all you need is like a half meter by half meter space. Yeah. No, no more than that. That should be all you need. Yeah, that's right. So if you've got a giant bench and it's just like you have vice on one end and a bench drill on the other like mine then the center between those two tools just gets filled with crap yeah a foot high like it's yeah and it, the, the big thing literally is, is will get to a point where it's comical that's you know and that's where like a half meter by half meter space really works because that will get covered in crap like i guarantee you it but because it's only a half meter by half meter it doesn't take that long to clear my bench is two and a half meters long <laughs> by a meter by a meter deep it takes me an entire day just to sort out the crap that I've piled on there over the last two, three weeks. <laughs> what Sam's saying is absolutely true. In um, that optimization video, you can see the new tool racking that I've built. And on it, it has a mini tool bench uh, that's literally about 30 centimeters wide and maybe about three feet long. And ever since building it, I've purely used that. I actually have a big, long tool bench uh, where mm. my surfacing plate is that's about two meters long. I haven't used it. I haven't yeah. needed to. Um, even if I'm using epoxy or something like that, I slap down some blue painter's tape on top of it, mix the epoxy on top of that, peel it off when I'm done and get rid of it and move on. And I've been surprised and shocking myself after thinking that I need all this work table stuff. I don't. This little space that's like three feet by a foot is incredibly fine for everything yeah. that I've needed. Yeah, it's very rare that you need large bench space in forging. Mm. Um, most of the time, if you're laying out like stuff like scrolls for a, for a door or something like that, normally you can use the floor. Yeah. Um, so large bench space isn't a necessity. And what a lot of us fall into the, the, you know, kind of, we fall into the woodworker hole where woodworkers need large bench spaces for like laying planks to do planing and stuff like that on. Yeah. But in blacksmithing, though, we don't do that. So what ends up happening is that we just pile tools on it because that's a nice place to put them. Ooh, I just thought of something that Fred hasn't thought of. Mm. Something that I added only recently to my forge. Um, and I say recently, I mean, my entire journey down here in Tasmania, I've, I've had it, uh, but I never had it previously, is I have a chalkboard in my forge. Mm. It has proven invaluable 
Uh, you might want a whiteboard. I just don't like the markers. I like being able to just markers dry out or you leave them uncapped or you have them sitting the wrong way around and they you know you need to warm them back up and things and i live in a very cold environment and whiteboard markers don't like that chalk always works it never runs yep. out of ink uh, i have so- i have both so i have a whiteboard and I, well i don't actually have a chalk uh, chalkboard i just have the wall of my shed <laughs> yeah but you can um do what i did i just bought a piece of mdf and painted it with chalkboard paint which you mm. can just buy in a little can and it works beautifully and it's outdoors like it's in an open exposed place i only gave it one coat i didn't even do the multiple coats thing and it works beautifully um, or you can it, do the the joey vandersteeg thing and use your forge hood yeah that's right yeah roy the, adams the, does that as well the rusty forge hood it's yeah. the best way to do it <laughs> I, I do a lot of anvil theory in my videos as well like just chalking it up on the anvil but if you don't have a, a Sawyer's pattern anvil there's only so much real estate there that you can cover <laughs> uh, but having a chalkboard is so handy and it's so cheap to just add one in there absolutely and yeah. like one piece of chalk lasts you for months <laughs> yeah I mean I, I use engineer's chalk for marking hot work and stuff like that Mm. And engineer's chalk being so hard means that it lasts a lot longer than your normal chalkboard chalk. Yeah. And uh, I use that for all of my my note-taking and stuff. That's very true. I have a shard that, like, I accidentally dropped my engineer's chalk thing and it landed on a piece of steel and shattered into all these pieces. And I picked up a shard of it and I've been using that one shard for about three months. (laughs) I, I, I literally bought three lengths of it, like, three years ago, and I've only just had to replace them today. Yeah, yeah. Like... Uh, I bought three more lengths and it should last me another three years. At least. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, Fred. There's, there's something you haven't thought of. <laughs> so, hints. so we're going to our second and final question, which actually does relate to our topic of the week. Uh, and it's from Steve Ellis, who's, I think, uh, Red Snake Forge on Instagram. Right. Um, he says, hey, fellas, please do make a part two of the forging myths. That's hilarious. It's great content. Having said that, I have a question. Forgive me if it gets a little long-winded. It doesn't. That's spoiler, <laughs> spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> I have been seeing knife makers on YouTube that are making knives without mechanical means of securing the handle. They are hidden tang knives, typically a Viking style. Some of the makers use epoxy or some sort of adhesive, but I've seen others that don't seem to use any adhesive. At least not that it is shown in the video. So my question is, what is your opinion on knives without mechanical fasteners and what would be the best way to go about joining those handles? Thanks and keep up the great content, Steve Ellis. This is actually something that I'm totally unfamiliar with. I've not seen that happen. Yeah, actually, it's funny because it is actually quite common. Um, Especially in two fields. So... The first field that it's very common in is kitchen cutlery. Uh, a lot of... Uh, so traditionally Japanese uh, kitchen knives are seated in their handles with only uh, resin or epoxy uh, to hold them in and no mechanical pin. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of like Western smiths who make Japanese style cutlery will put pins in it. But um, I've, seen, most... I've seen that before. I mean, you can tooth the tang and then put epoxy in there, and that's a pretty secure hold. But what about no adhesive? Like no adhesive whatsoever. Yeah, I thought that's... he was talking about only no mechanical function. No, he's talking about using no adhesive. I'm, I'm thinking, is that like a Chinese finger trap tang? Um, you can go in but can't come out. 
or something? Or is it a friction fit on a handle? That doesn't seem very safe. No, it doesn't seem very safe at all. I Cause, can't... Because he said some of the makers use epoxy or some sort of adhesive, <laughs> but I've seen others that don't seem to use any adhesive, at least that's not shown in the video. So I'm starting to lean towards maybe they just don't show it. Yeah, that maybe they just don't clear. show the gluing process. Because... Um, well, he says, what is your opinion on knives without mechanical fasteners? So, and what is the best way to go about joining those handles? Like, like Sam was saying, like the, there are plenty of people who will just seat a tang with adhesive. And um, I've, I've done this before on hidden tangs. It's just I tooth the tang to give it extra grip. Yeah, just put some little, you know, half moon, you know, cuts in it with a chainsaw file and you mm-hmm. know, Bob's your auntie. That's right. Fanny's your aunt. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm a big fan of pins, even on a hidden tang. It's yeah, uh, I I like mechanical extra, fasteners, extra it's insurance. Just, it, yeah, and especially if you're not doing preparation for your gluing properly, like you're not degreasing the tang and and you know like completely removing any oils and stuff like that. Mm. There is a chance that the resin, even in a properly fitted uh, one, can actually shrink away from the from the tang. Yeah, or shrink away from the walls of the of the. Um, handle material depending on what the handle material is there's also the dreaded uh happening that is like every night knife maker's worst fear is setting up a glue glue up putting it in there and then uh the the tang almost floats back out a little bit and you end up getting <laughs> a tiny bit of a gap yeah. um that that can happen because you don't yeah, want to yeah, clamp well, too hard because you know bad things happen so you clamp a little too softly and but if you actually have a pin holding it in there that's a nice snug you know yep, fitted properly fit. then you and you've lined it up correctly there's no chance of that happening absolutely no no it's it's definitely pins are just a, a an extra safety precaution i like them as an accent as well you know like you can use them to accent the whole build um so yeah they're they're, they're they are useful in that way but there are also things like you know peened tangs like you know a lot of um Traditional like Norwegian and, and Danish and, and you know Swedish knives have very long rat tail tangs that are actually hooked rather than like peened in place. They're actually hooked over onto the wooden handle itself, um, and that's a very traditional. Going back to the Viking ages, a lot of the uh, the knives knives that they found back from those ages have the little hook on the end because uh, the handles have rotted away years ago. Um, but you can see the little hook on the tang where they've actually used a punch or the or a peen of a hammer to knock over the end of the tang and basically uh, clinch it like a clinch nail back into the. Um, That's an interesting um, concept, really. You could even do it like a nice groove in the handle and then lay it down into that groove. It'd be yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so yeah, that that is a very um, common technique, uh, especially in the northern European uh, area, uh, as far as I'm aware. Um, so that, you know, that doesn't have pins or epoxy, um, you know, so that's, that's a method. In terms Uh, though of a sort of a a self-adhering, um, mechanical fit up with no adhesive and no pins, I, I, I've not seen anything like that, so I can't speak on it, I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm like, I'm kind of leaning towards press X to doubt on that one. Um, <laughs> Although, like if wet. you if you have seen something like this, then do let us know because that would be interesting. I mean, there are one-way mechanical holes 
but none yeah, that I can think of that could be done in a handle unless it was two halves of a handle that were brought together like a frame tang. But even then, it, it, it would be a very unreliable... I can't think of any way that would be not problematic for having the blade fly out. If it yeah, failed. unless unless you had like a an integral lump at the base of the tang, and then you you know like had mortised that out into the handle mm. when you when you slabbed True. them together, so that it was locked inside the handle. But I, I still wouldn't trust that. <laughs> no, no, I just don't know why you would. I, I like, would I would lean <laughs> on the side of the fact that they're just not showing you the glue up in the videos. More than likely, uh, glue ups tend to be a little bit of a pain to shoot because. You're you know, frantically you panicking and... <laughs> Especially if you're using, like, five-minute epoxy, which a lot of the beginner knife makers and stuff like that are. They're using, like, a five-minute arrow light or something like that. And it's simply because they've seen it on Forged and Fire and think that that's the only option they've got. That's yeah, either that or they, they went for the cheapest glue they could find at the local hardware store, yeah. uh, which is almost always the five-minute epoxy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, the, the big thing is that, like, uh, filming glue-ups can be a bit of a pain uh, because, yeah, you're less focused on the camera and more focused on getting the glue-up right. Uh, and then handling cameras with glue, and uh, it's just, yeah, it can be really annoying. So, yeah, it could be that they've just skimmed over that. If you have, like, a video where you think that they haven't used any kind of mechanical fastener or epoxy, then I would really like to see that. Because, you know, like, there's many ways to skin a cat, and I am not the arbiter of everything that's true and right in the world. So there is a chance that I'm completely wrong. But, yeah, as far as I'm aware, that it's not done. There are uh, knives and swords that are held in with only resins, like uh, the Tulwa, which is uh, a famous example. It's a sword which doesn't have a mechanical fastener. Um, it, it Literally, the tang is held in with anthill resin. Uh, it's heated in the handle, which the handle is made out of wrought iron, and uh, then the, the blade, the heated tang, is settled into the, the anthill resin, and then they're left to cool, or plunged into water, depending. Uh, and then, yeah, the, when they want to put a new blade in it, they just heat up the handle again. Right. Uh, pull the blade out. So yeah, th there are examples of that kind of stuff all the way through history. So um, yeah, I just don't know about. I've had a couple of materials like um, grass tree stem that when I've done a burn in in that uh, the the fibers don't burn; they just kind of mash out of the way. And then when I've tried to remove it after doing the burn, I haven't been able to. But the thing is that then two or three days later, when it's dried out a little bit, then the, the knife comes loose. So that's what got me thinking. Like, uh, you know how you can, uh, when you're doing a wrapped leather handle, you shrink the leather onto it? Um, yeah. You, know, you yeah, put, like wet put it, it on wet and then dry. Like, I wonder if there are things, materials like that that you can wet it and slide the tang in and then let it dry and it, or something like that. You know, maybe. And then you I mean, still you still tooth the tang or whatever, but then it actually grips it. Mm. Possibly, possibly. I'd be I'd be very genuinely interested to actually find out if there are things like that. Well, the technicality is I have seen someone build my carter onto a tang. That is but, though using an adhesive. Yeah, but that's yeah that's like it's a technicality. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he used he used soaked like soaked in epoxy pieces of material and just wrapped it around the tang multiple times until he had enough to make a handle out of. Did it did it look good? Uh, no, not really. I was 
I'm just trying to think of like I spend spend so much time during a glue up keeping any adhesive off the ricasso, and I, I like that is most of my freak out is is just like oh god it's more of it's bloody squeezing out god damn it you know wiping it away keeping it clean getting the acetone all that sort of thing trying to actually do my carter on the knife all i can think about is just constant schmutz all over the ricasso of the knife i do have a secret for that yeah renaissance wax I had thought about that because, like, you use Vaseline and things when you're going to be seating or bedding a tang. Um, Actually, yeah, no, Adam Fromholtz, this is something that I heard from Adam Fromholtz uh, at Blade Symposium. Yep. Um, yeah, Renaissance wax for bedding and for um, epoxy clear and cleaner. Yeah, cool. I'll, I'll keep that in mind because I'm a Like, Renaissance wax on its own needs to be a tool of the week one time oh yeah i think we could spend an entire episode I'm talking about Renaissance totally wax. not sponsored but if you make knives if you just love knives you don't even have to make them if you just like having knives and collect them or you have one really nice knife that you just really like and you want to look after it get some Renaissance wax oh my god it's so good which fits really well into tool yeah. time tool time <laughs> although is it an oil well no but it is a handle finish it is but that's going to be for our topic of the week okay well you know oils oils waxes they're all the same no they're not but you know where you can get some finishing oil though where can you get finishing oil from tool time sponsor and tool time this week is brought to you by the boys at creativeman.com.au the place to go for your blade steels handle materials and accessories they've also just released their new round of bevel grinding jigs which fit perfectly with their world-class file guides for that perfect bevel and plunge they also sell some pretty cool finishing oil called uh, was it uncle bjorn's handle finish the finish finish <laughs> that's yeah, right Uncle Bjorn, <laughs> Bjorn sandal finish that's and it's it. some pretty slick stuff I've heard uh, I haven't tried it myself but Sam has and he likes it I do I love it so it's check awesome. them out at creativeman.com.au today to stock up so that was an are, awesome segue <laughs> as you may have already guessed our tool time this week is finishing oils specifically Jeez. for uh, handle materials on knives but also You'd like to, there is, it's a good idea to use finishing oils on your steel uh, mm. to, to protect them. Now, we sort of touched on this a little bit a couple of episodes ago when we were talking about um, working with wood. Mm, indeed. Um, and we talked about various things. We didn't really go into them much. And tool time would, uh, especially when we're talking about handle materials, which is our topic of the week, um, it would not be complete without actually going into some of the various different finishes because we touched on them, but people may have been confused um, if they're not used to using them. A lot of people just go and buy boiled linseed oil, um, slap it on and call it good. Yes. But they may, they may not realize that boiled linseed oil never fully polymerizes and is not necessarily ideal um, if you want to go for that pure oil finish. Um, and if you just want to use, go true pure oil and go just linseed oil, prepare yeah. to wait for days for it to dry properly. 
decades, not yeah. days. Yeah, well, that's right. <clears throat> raw linseed oil takes forever to dry. Yeah, and I mean, we talked about sealing woods um, if we're using natural woods, unstabilized woods, and to properly seal them and try to mitigate any um, entrance of uh, contaminants into your handle that may cause warpage and things, you need polymerization on the surface and if you're using mm. pure oils there is only one pure oil that will polymerize 100% and tongue that oil. is tongue oil which is very expensive and it makes people drive away from it really um, some I people, love tongue oil though it's, everybody it who works awful. with wood loves tongue oil but not everybody <laughs> can afford it um, but there are uh, non-pure oils that uh, you can work with that have their own issues you know, um, Danish oil, for example, actually comes with a uh, part of that. Uh, one of the main ingredients is polyurethane, which is a uh, technically like a varnish, I suppose. Mm. Um, I mean, it does it does seal the surface to an extent, but it does wear away after a time. You need to reapply it. I mean, you do need to do that with every oil, but uh, the longevity of it uh, and the the finish feel, handle feel, may yeah. not be desirable or what you're going for. Well, that's it. I mean, tongue oil, one of the great advantages of tongue oil is after you've built up several layers, uh, it you can get a glass mirror kind of finish uh, on wood, on even unstabilized woods. It is a fantastic wo- uh, material for getting that really glossy uh, shine, which you'll never get with uh, linseed oil or Danish oil. Mm. Um, they, they always have that kind of matte look uh, and feel, like in the hand, they feel very matte as well. At best, um, satin. Yeah, it's satin, yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, so it, it is a very distinct feel, and it is a very distinct look, and especially if you've got, like, a high-gloss blade and, you know, really clean fittings and stuff like that, the last thing you want is a kind of matte, off-color-looking uh, handle. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's one of those things where it doesn't matter how high of a grit you go, if you're using uh, a, a natural oil like linseed oil and stuff like that that doesn't fully polymerize, then yeah, you're not going to get that nice shiny finish uh, that tongue oil will give you. Mm. Um, like, and then there comes the the fact that uh, reapplication of oils differs for each oil. Um, for instance, uh, linseed oil. I was always taught that you do it um, every day for a week, every week for a month, uh, and then every month for a year, and then after that you can re-oil it every year, um, just to keep the handles uh, happy. Yeah, uh, and that was that's for like axe handles, hammer handles, that kind of thing, where linseed oil really shines because you have to use a lot of it um, to coat the material. The reason I like tongue oil for ha- for knife handles is because you don't have to use a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, some you may depending on the part of the world you're in, you may be actually no tongue oil as uh, China oil or China wood oil. Mm. Chinese wood oil. Um, it, we're not talking about. If you haven't heard about, it, it's not oil made from tongues. <laughs> no, it's made from the tongue nut. T U N G. Yeah, nut of tongue tree. Mm. Yeah, it's um, sold from uh, Bunnings as kitchen timber oil. There is actually Feast and Watson has a tongue oil that you can actually look it up. It's um, about seventy bucks for a jar of it. Yeah, the kitchen timber oil is ninety nine point nine percent tongue oil and like. 1% linseed oil or something like that like oh, yeah. 0.1% what's the it's, price it's, difference uh, it's like 40 bucks for a, for a tin oh right that's, that's a hell of a price difference oh yeah 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 
Uh, and the other thing is the kitchen timber oil hardens completely, like it fully polymerizes, and it also is uh, classified as food safe. So, Lovely. like, you can actually say that the the handle finish was food safe. <laughs> I've actually used it on my wooden chopping boards. It's actually really good. Yeah, very cool. Although, well, don't use the chopping board like right after you've used the oil, because then everything tastes like tongue oil. <laughs> you will taste it on your tongue. <laughs> Um, now, handle uh, hand, wood handles aren't the only thing that you'll finish with finishing oils. Um, finishing your steel with oils mm. uh, makes a big difference as well. Um, I am a huge fan of ballastol oil, um, even though it stinks to high heaven. And if you directly inhale when your face is near the, the mouth of the bottle, you will choke. Um but it is actually an oil that can be safely used on leather, wood, and metal, which mm. is something most people don't realize. A lot of um, metal protective oils will actually damage leather. Yes. Um, yeah, or dry out wood in a bad way or, or actually affect the color of it. And um, Ballastol is the only one I know of that does all three perfectly safely. Except three in one. Three and one is good, <laughs> but it's, it's not, not as good. It's not great. It's not. It's not like well, for its price. Good. Like three and one is also the price. It's like three dollars and one cent for a bottle. <laughs> oh yeah, no, you can get it for two dollars a bottle at BW. Oh really? It's crazy it, cheap. Every house should have. I actually literally look. I've, I've got one on my desk. I have them in yep. every room in the house. A bottle of three yep. and one oil. Three it's, and one is fantastic. Yeah. Um. I do not find it to be as good at protecting blades as ballastol. No, it doesn't stick around as long. No, you got to keep reapplying it. Um, yeah. Um, the other oil that you will find a lot of people talk about with knife handles and uh, hammer handles and stuff like that is true oil, um, which is a gunstock finish. Uh, and again, I believe it does have some form of polymer in it uh, to help it completely polymerize. It's funny you mention that, actually, because ballastol was invented by gunsmiths for use on mm. guns because of the wood, leather, and metal. Um, it seems to be the theme that uh, oil that's good for guns is good for knives. Well, yeah. I mean, we work with a lot of the similar materials. Uh, and as, uh, you know, Claudio and uh, <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> the Sabral brothers were gunsmiths, and a lot of the American Blazeman Society guys are gunsmiths in their, part to, in their hobby time. Mm. Um, you know, because they are very closely related. So... Mm. Um, yeah, ballastol and uh, most gun oils will protect your knives, and uh, true oil, which is a hardening gunstock finish, um, is a really good uh, finish for hand knife handles as well. Uh, although, again, you will be paying the price for it. Yes, and that was, I was going to say that ballastol is not cheap at all. Um, no. It does does last a long time, though. I have a little trick that I use, uh, little um, little tins. And I put, mm. a, I stuff the tin with rags, and then put a little ballastol in there and close the tin. And I've always got a, an oiled rag ready to go; it doesn't evaporate off. Yeah, um, the oilers, the old oilers. Yeah, it makes uh, makes things last a lot longer. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, three and one oil is phenomenal if you're willing to keep reapplying it. Um, and it's just it's good for so many different things. It's the WD forty of the oil world, really. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, but um, and then, I mean, you can use uh, as a steel finish. We have covered it previously on a blacksmith's finishes um, episode. But uh, linseed oil, when applied to hot steel, um, is a good finish and also protectant um, mm. for you know, especially stuff that's being used outdoors. I like. And we're doing it we're on talking my about black heat. 
yeah, black heat, like below, you know, just above purple, but uh, below glowing. Yeah. Otherwise, you just end up getting a face full of flame mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and rancid smoke. It's great. Um, and there are ways, like I always said before, there are ways to apply it where it doesn't have that stickiness to it. But um, depending on the application, the stickiness, stickiness may be irrelevant. If you're doing like a, a hanging plant pot um, rack thing for outside that's up high and you're never actually going to touch it, it doesn't matter if it's got a sticky linseed finish. No, the same with, uh, you know, like, um, shelf brackets and stuff like that. You're not going to worry about it too much. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but there are ways around that. So, yes, keep in mind that uh, the more you understand finishing oils, the more you can actually protect your work, the more you can make it last longer, and the more you can actually uh, make it more idiot-proof, And which any maker knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and get the result the desired results from from the oil as well you know yeah that's right to to get the right finish on your handles not all oils are built the same there is a reason that there are so many different types and um they're, they're not just competing brands or something you need to understand what each of them does um to to fully get the uh, the best use out of them um, however, that does kind of slide into the DMs of our topic of the week, <laughs> uh, which is uh, part two of handle materials. This is actually requested by you guys. I have had a huge number of people who heard us talking about the in the wood choices episode sort of turned into a basically talking about knife handle materials. Yeah, it um, did. <laughs> it just turned like half the episode was just talking about knife handles. So we actually had a heap of people message us on the Instagram and the Facebook saying, please do a part two going into more detail about the various handle materials. People want to know about G10. People want to know about antler. People want to know about what Sam did with his coining on the brass liners of his muso buoy. They want to know about all of this stuff. And there's it's such a big topic that, honestly, we could probably turn this into a four or five part series. We're probably going to have to, because honestly, uh, I mean, we're already like an hour into the episode. And <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> But um, we talked about stabilized wood versus natural wood in the last one. So I believe that we've covered that completely. Um, So when it comes down to it, the next logical step would be non-wood handle materials, which really comes down to resin in the form of micata or um, actual resin blocks, like what uh, Sam sent me recently. It looked like a scented candle. Um, And... (laughs) Also, um, G10, uh, G or yeah, G10 handles are a thing, but usually they're in the form of liners. Um, and well, I've got I've got like eight blocks of G10 handles. What am I trying to think of? The plastic, Delrin, Delrin, yeah, Delrin is a, f- a phenomenal thing. And um, did I say antler? Not yet, but you also yeah. have carbon fiber. Yeah, um, carbon fiber handles. Now, that's yep. a tricky material to work with, something, a challenge I'd like to take on one day. Massive pain in the ass. Oh, yeah. Just you want to like wear, s- wear your respirator. So abrasive resistant. Like, mm. um, actually, to just touch on carbon fiber a bit, to give you an idea of how abrasive it is, I think Kyle Royer went through like 10 or 11 um, Grobe needle files, like the, the highest quality needle files you can get when he fluted that... Um, that uh, stiletto dagger handle, which was oh, carbon right. fiber. God, that looked good, though. 
he also went through a couple of checkering tools and stuff like that, which are car- which are uh, tungsten carbide. Like, oh, you know, it's, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. That stuff is just horrifying. Yeah, there's a reason they use it on airplanes and space shuttles and things like that. Yeah, one of one of the uh, Western Australian bladesmiths, uh, Brendan Atkinson, actually recently did a D guard Bowie knife where he used uh, carbon fiber for the guard. Oh, like the the whole guard was made, and he also did a clamshell in it. Like, I don't even know how he did it. It was stupidly cool. Wow. Yeah. Well, how how drunk was he when he came up with the idea to do that? <laughs> You'd have to ask him. I have no idea. <laughs> but it looked awesome. It looked awesome. We all thought he was nuts when he, when he posted to the West Australian Blacksmiths page going, Hey guys, making a clamshell friggin' carbon fiber guard for a buoy. And we were like, uh, okay. Yep. All right. <laughs> and then he pulled it off. He did, and it it looked awesome. So yeah, brilliant. There you go. That is a handle material. Well, I've been working with antler uh, recently after avoiding it for a long time. Uh, not just antler horn as well. I, I did a a, a uh, like a top of well, I don't know. You you probably know the technical term. The the top part of a handle that when you've got a multi part handle the top part like yeah i don't know is there a name for it like if you're going to do a multi-part handle like it you know a color transition just below, oh, okay so just talking like on a full Ricasso. tank yeah on the full on a full tank yeah so that, that would be the bolster bolster that's the word i'm looking for I, I knew it was on the tip of my tongue yeah i did a cow antler i believe it was the antler you sent me ages ago um, well not cow because cows cows horn horn whatever <laughs> I'm really tired. It's late at night for me. Well, there's um, a difference between horn and antler. Yes, I know. Um, I, I believe it was cow uh, horn that you sent me ages ago, back when I was still in Brisbane. And you sent me a couple of pieces of... In the first care package you ever sent me, you sent me a couple of pieces of horn. And I believe you said it was cow horn. Um, okay. I only remember seeing, sending you antler, but... No, uh, might, might have... It doesn't... It's very different horn to the antler that's from the deer down here. Because um, I also have been working with antler from... They're all sheds from um, the deer that uh, local hunters have been giving me down here. It's mm-hmm. very different material. The horn you gave me, um, yeah, very different. I'm pretty sure you said it was cow horn. Right. This is, we're, going, we're going back like 18 months, yeah. two years. <laughs> two years ago. Yeah, yeah I, I don't remember that back far when back. We, back when we were young and naive. Yeah. Um, so yeah there was that um that was my first experience with it and it is a different material if you're used to using wood because of the the marrow center it's it's sort of got this uh if you have if you've never worked with it before you it looks very hard and and solid and homogenous on the outside but the inside is like this honeycomb of semi-hollowness that you do not want to get close to if you are sanding its shape no (laughs) it's terrible um, however, that also creates a phenomenally strong capillary force on any resin that you might put on it. Uh, mm-hmm. And you will find that if you're doing a full tang knife, then you put down your resin onto it, sucks it all up, and then you've got nothing actually holding it against the, the tang. So yeah, you, have to be, yeah. you have to be quite um, pre-prepare it, really. I, I, I was... What I do for it is actually slather resin on it first 
um, and fill all the voids, sand it back again, and then use it. Yeah, no, that's a good way to go. Yeah, it was uh, un- it was a surprising little complication to what was otherwise going to be a fairly straightforward glue up. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is the marrow. You like you hit it, you hit it right on the head. So the difference between antler and horn, of course, antler is is a bone form. Hmm. Uh, it's a form of form of bone, so it has a marrow and it has um, you know like it, it has a bone structure. It's very uh, granular uh, in its horn construction. Is chitin. Well, horn is uh, keratin. Keratin. That's yeah, same called. thing you have as in your fingernails. And um, hair. Yeah, and hair, exactly. It is basically an overgrown hair, is mm. what a horn is. Uh, and it, it very much appears like it. Like, it actually, um, old horn or dry horn uh, will actually peel apart into, like, tiny fibers, almost like hairs. Mm. Um, it's a massive pain in the butt to work with. <laughs> it's kind of like it's made of fiberglass. Yeah, it is. It's, it's basically like, yeah, it's, it's tiny keratin fibers held together with a form of natural resin. Um, and most horn that you'll find will be uh, hollow uh, and be very thin because uh, there's normally a nerve center. Instead of marrow, you have a nerve center in a horn, mm. um, much like a nerve in a tooth um, that just basically leaves a hollow in the bottom. Uh, so buffalo horn and stuff like that, which is commonly used. I actually have a, a piece of a pair of buffalo horn scales from uh, <laughs> from Creative Man and a buffalo horn roll uh, from Met Creative Man as well. Uh, cool. Are normally sectioned from the thicker sections right near the tip of the horn, rather than near the base. Yeah, because the base is actually the thinnest part on a horn, uh, unlike antler, where the thinnest part is normally the uh, the the wider tips. sections at the top. Yeah, the wider section. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and uh, when you talk about horn, it's usually not quite as uh, what's the word? What's the best word for it? Theatrical in its appearance. Right. <laughs> Antler, you have quite a lot more shape to choose from. Um, in terms of, like, I've been working with using uh, the crown pieces where it actually attaches to the skull of the the deer um for the pommel of the knife that i've got you see that quite commonly on a lot of knives that mm. you you sort of see that handle flow down into that crown piece and it looks phenomenal when you do it right um and the texture on the surface of it it can be preserved if you find the right shaped piece to use on, on scales and you yeah. if because you, you can sand it all the way back and basically just get like a uh, ivory looking you know <laughs> yep. flat white shiny thing which does not particularly look visually appealing but it feels really nice on your hand um, mm. but to actually preserve that texture is is quite an art form yeah it's very difficult it's one of the reasons why I've always liked the Sobral Brothers uh, work because they always manage to preserve as much of that peppercorny as they can uh, they get very figured handles, which if is you, great. If you go to their website, um, and don't do the mobile version, you go to the desktop version of their website, um, and go down to the photos section of their <laughs> workshop, there is a, a... One of the photos actually shows their collection of antler. Mm-hmm. The size of that collection makes you realize how they're able to find the perfect piece to, to fit. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, you have to go through quite a, quite a few to get the right shape and size. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of one of the disadvantages is that you're constantly hunting for um, the right shape, the right size. 
Uh, and without, like, without being in an area where there are deer, where you can just pick up sheds and stuff like that, you're forced to purchase it online. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time when you're purchasing it, you don't really get to see the antler you're purchasing. You purchase a piece of antler from a dealer, mm. and they'll send you a piece. And that whether that piece is what you want or not doesn't really matter. I've had the uh, luck of being my, my, my main shtick that I've fallen into is hunting knives um, yeah. for, for locals, and all of them have just been bringing me sheds. And, it's, <laughs> and even then, like I thought when I started, I thought, well, cool, I'm set for antler for ages. And then now I've started using it, I've realized that even having a giant pile of antlers, in there, there might be one piece that's kind of sort of what I need. Yeah, it's it's crazy how how little you can get away with. Mm. Um, the major the major advantages to antler is because in their natural state they're relatively stable. Um, they can warp and and shrink and crack a little bit, uh, especially when uh, left in the sun or when they dry out quite a bit. Because um, I get I get constantly asked because I make a few quite a few ha- antler handled knives. People ask me what do you do to finish them, and uh, to be honest, you don't really need to do much. I normally uh, buff them, uh, like sand them to a high grit and buff them, and that's all they need done to them. Uh, and then the only upkeep you might need to do is if you're in a dry climate, is to occasionally put some like food grade mineral oil or something like that on them, uh, just to keep the the moisture level up uh, in them, because otherwise they will crack um, because they like to shrink in the heat. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, other than that, they're incredibly stable. They're waterproof. Um, you know, they they don't react badly to humidity and uh, stuff like that. So they, they are an incredibly useful. Speak, um, speaking of hand material. materials that are incredibly useful, waterproof and durable, um, another thing that I've been working with for the first time recently is Delrin, which I really like. Um, mm. Because normally you think of putting plastic on a knife handle and you think, ugh. But then you work with Delrin and it sands and buffs like wood. It's a phenomenal material. It's it's genuinely phenomenal, and it feels nice at the end of it. Yeah, because it, it, it was designed as a free machining plastic. Like uh, Delrin originally, it was intended for machine use, um, for like lathe turning and stuff like that for uh, parts for machinery. Uh, and so it's an incredibly high density um, material. It's actually very strong as well, uh, and it's been commonly used in the knife making industries for a long time. Uh, case. Knives, a uh, very famous knife maker over in uh, America who make like slip joints and stuff like that, uh, use Delrin in a lot of their handles. Hmm. Um, a lot of like fake bone handles tend to be Delrin with you know bone bone jigging and stuff like that put into them um, because it's incredibly stable. It is just completely chemically neutral. <laughs> you can get such an incredible finish on it um, just mm. by sanding it the same way that you would with wood. Yeah, absolutely. It um, even responds it, to oil quite nicely, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's really fun to uh, to turn on a lathe because um, <laughs> it doesn't break chip or anything like that. It just the streamers you, you get of perfect. one long streamer of, <laughs> of Delrin. <laughs> but yeah, it is it is a fantastic material. It is it's a lot of fun, um, and unlike resins, it has a certain flexibility to it. Um, you know, one of the things you'll find with the resin that I sent you. Uh, is it's a cast resin and tends to be brittle, mm. um, which means it doesn't dent very easily. Like it scratches easily, but it doesn't dent very easily. But that also means that if it's got a weak point or like a, a thin area uh, where it's under strain, it will just crack. 
Uh, whereas Daryl Delrin will flex. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. But resins have the advantage of having uh, multiple colors, and you know you can have all kinds of cool designs. I've yep. got a couple. I've got two more rounds, uh, other than what I sent you, uh, in different colors, uh, in different color schemes, and they're really cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to working with that. To be honest, it looks like uh, toxic waste out of a Crash Bandicoot video game. It's um, <laughs> and recently, I actually. Um, and uh, just to to describe it to the audience, I mean, it's it's literally just resin with pigment and dye in it that has been swirled around chaotically to be like all manner of greens, whites, and blacks. Um, and it it literally looks like toxic waste out of a video game. And um, when I unwrapped it, it looks quite sort of plain. But once you polish it up and buff it and and shine it, all this depth and yeah, sort of, it's um, almost like chatoyance except it's just the, the the resins kind of see through and you can see the layers of the swirls the the swirls of pigment inside there are immortalized and and held captive in time and you can actually see that depth in the material like it would be garish to make an entire handle out of it but adding it as accents for things would be um very potent i think uh, i think i I think the, the, a three-part um, full tang handle where you had uh, black Delrin and black Delrin with the toxic green in the middle would be fantastic. Absolutely, and that's kind of what I had in mind, to be honest. Um, potentially with some um, some nice toxic green G10 liners. Um, yeah. Either side. <laughs> um, one thing that I actually had an idea for, although it's a pain in the ass to work with when it comes to trying to get it to adhere to things, um, is to actually use acrylic. Uh, mm. as a liner um, something that's transparent um, because buff uh, acrylic with buffed edges has a um, like a fiber optic effect on light yeah um, which if you had thin acrylic transparent green acrylic liners with the black delrin top and bottom and then that toxic waste i think that would be a real like you have like a really mean looking profile that uh, is some spine work or something that catches the light, you'd be able to make a really sort of sexy-looking knife, I reckon. Absolutely. That sounds killer. Yeah. Imagine putting carbon fiber pins in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just go just go full tactical. <laughs> if you're doing polished black Delrin on green, you'd be it would be almost a crime not to use brass pins. On well, yeah. I mean, brass pins would ha- be a must-have. Yeah. And maybe maybe a like a mosaic pin through the through the green. Yeah, custom mosaic pins is something I'd very much like to get into, especially since my touch mark would be easy enough to actually make into mosaic pins. True, that would be really cool. Mm, would be, but uh, that is something I do not have the time for. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Although mosaic pins is probably something a topic that might like to be heard about as a topic of the week. Yeah, let the, us know. The process of making them is actually fascinating. Yeah, there's a couple of ways to, to do it, but yeah, um, yeah it's, it's fantastic. I, I, although varying results, so I'd, I'd, if I was going to do it, I'd go with the, the pumped syringe method just to yeah. mi- minimize chances of voids because um, you wouldn't want to go through all that work and then... No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> and stuff it up um, but that's that's a few more handle materials um, for people to ponder over and maybe start ordering from creative man uh, <laughs> who stocks a lot of this stuff not um, Delrin unfortunately but um, they do have some cool G10 and some very cool uh, 
Micarta uh, and Micarta Buffalo and Horn. Such. And yeah, horns. Stabilized woods. Yeah, sta- yeah, and and some non-stabilized woods as well, I believe. I think so. Hmm. Uh, I just actually got a piece sent by one of my patrons. It was actually Camp for Laurel. He'd never heard of it before. Stefan had never heard of Camp for Laurel before. Um, I've worked with it a, a lot. I love that wood because every time you grind on it, it makes your entire workshop smell phenomenal. <laughs> so good. It smells like you just stepped into a giant pot of Vicks. <laughs> yep. Camphor, camphor wood. Gotta love it. Oh, it's just incredible. I love it. It actually makes for a nice handle wood. It's 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 not as... You really want to do a lot of work to finish it and put some like a polymerized coating on it to harden it up a bit. But um, it's very pretty wood. I like it on smaller knives. Uh, you wouldn't want to... Mm. I, I wouldn't want to ever do it on a big knife hand, like a big chunky boy, but like a little delicate knife that's not really for hard use. It's just yep. gorgeous wood. Love it. Always love a chance to to, uh, to work with it. So I was glad to get another piece because I'd used up all of mine. Hmm. So that being that, everybody needs to not forget that we have, uh, speaking of Stefan, his uh, suggested challenge of this month, which is to forge something that you are used to forging, but doing it with your hands swapped. Sam has competed in this and done a smashing job. Um and I have yet to, although I'm thinking of maybe doing it tomorrow because I've got um, my student, Adam, coming over to the forge. So he'll probably laugh at me the entire time I'm doing it. Um, he'll hold the camera. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that, that should be fun. Um, but uh, that being said, uh, if you would like to send us a question yourself, you can do so by sending it over to ask.forgecast at gmail.com or getting in touch with us on Facebook or Instagram. If you'd like to find Sam, you can find me at Samtown's Bladesmith on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Etsy, Patreon, Redbubble, the kitchen sink. I'm always there. And you can find Alex. I go by Valhalla Ironworks and you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, Etsy, Redbubble. Uh, not so much TikTok anymore, although I'm still there technically. Um, and the Forgecast. Of course. <laughs> That's we're also here <laughs> yeah. but uh, as we wrap up this extra long episode I hope you're all doing well and we'll see you all again next week catch you later thanks guys, guys. Yeah. Oh!